morning we're going to be starting with Batsa Katara, who is a second year PhD student in English Literature and Medical Humanities from Durham University. And today her paper is Reassessing the Supercrypt Stereotype. So please welcome Batsa. Good morning, and let's kickstart our morning with Reassessing the Supercrypt Stereotype. The term supercrypt, which can aptly be defined as a stereotype narrative displaying the plot of someone who has to fight against his or her impairment in order to achieve unlikely success, is a misleading and dangerous twist on the word crippled, where to be crippled signifies the dire condition of human frailty, limitations of embodiment and a life without possibilities. To be supercrypt is emblematic of overcoming those limitations to such a preposterous extent that not only demonizes and annihilates the experience of living with physical disabilities, but also heralds an insidious discursive practice of athletic vigor and prowess. This presentation intends to demonstrate the deleterious consequences of supercrypt discursive practices on the perception and reception of physical dis disabilities. It argues for an empathetic and ethical appreciation of diverse experiences where one is neither deprecatingly crippled nor superhumanly able. Before embarking on the cultural and biological implications of certain bodily impairments, it is vital to consider that any form of physical disability disrupts movement, which is a manifestation of the body-mind synchronization. Movement scholar Maxine Sheets Johnson rightly alludes to movement as a matter of understanding the living body in its living fullness. And what emerges from an attention to movement is a dynamic sense of how a creature lives or lived, what its repertoire of eye cans allows or allowed, and what its particular kinetic dispositions are and were likely to have been. This assessment of motion endows it with a unique history comprising one stock of kinetic actions and an ongoing formation of kinetic potentialities which signify how far we grow into the bodies we are, a measure of both the extent to which we give ourselves over to the spontaneity of movement and the extent to which we explore the kinetic dimensions of our animate nature. The body-mind connect exhibited in movement determines and regulates how one interacts with one's external environment and exactly how much one is able to utilize, expand and explore the degree of one's bodily capacities through motion and action, where both agency and ownership over those actions play a pivotal role. Thus, an individual's unique physical orientation in his or her environment has both a dynamic and persistent character, which beckons towards some poignant questions regarding physical enfeeblement and motion. Like, how does an abrupt physical impairment disintegrate movement, a phenomenon so uniquely personalized to each individual? Two, is the disruption of attunement in motion a dead end? Three, is motion only a functional utility to an individual or does it have effective resonances? Does an individual aspire for an agility that surpasses any limitations? Five. And most crucially, is limitation really such a denigrating term that needs to be abolished and supplanted by discourses of non-limitation and superhuman abilities? Vivian Shopchik's account of a leg amputation as a result of a malignant thigh tumor is a fitting starting point to probe into these questions. She articulates her experience of a rigorous exercise regime post-amputation where she reconstitutes a kinetic orientation. She writes, there were all sorts of physical things that I had to do consciously in quick sequence, or worse, simultaneously. Kick the prosthetic leg forward to ground the heel, tighten my butt and pull my residual limb back into the socket, weight the prosthetic leg to lock the knee, take a step with my own leg and unweight the prosthetic leg as I did so, tighten the stomach and pull up tall to kick the prosthetic forward and begin again. This nonetheless took a great deal less time than I feared it would, given my middle age. Although it took much longer for me to develop a smoothly cadenced gait, I was functionally walking in a little over a month. 
Her amputation naturally ruptured her previous way of walking, and with that, her attunement in motion was also compromised. Nonetheless, her heightened sense of control over movements and consequently a rhythmic walk are reflective of the body's elastic adaptability to any loss. She does not credit her motion to a prosthetic alignment, rather she attributes it to a more conscious and willing relearning of the body whose rehabilitative potential is, in, is inexhaustible. She says, learning to walk and incorporate prosthetic legs has made me more, not less intimate with the operation power of my body. I also enjoy what for me always seems to be my newfound physical strength. In being a leg amputee and prosthesis wearer, she does not yearn to embrace a supergrip horizon of unlimited vitality. She recounts how following her amputation she was heralded into this world of technological high, where prosthesis had become a tool to unleash an athletic prospect that superseded even the pre-amputation embodiment. But in exploring the existing kinetic capacities of her body, she retrieves her gait and performs what for her are the organic movements of her body that bear no correspondence with the supergriff practices prescribing limitless agility. She writes, Indeed, long ago I remember attending that first meeting of the support group, at which my prosthetist proudly showed a video of amputees racing in the special Olympics. As I sat there, I watched the people around me and knew that all they wanted, as I did, was to be able to walk at work, to the store, maybe on a treadmill at the gym. In sum, I have no desire for the latest literal body parts. All I want is a leg to stand on, a limb to go out on, so I can get about my world with a minimum of prosthetic thought. Corresponding with Chopchek's experience is the fictional delineation of amputation in Coetzee's fiction Slow Man. Here, the protagonist Paul undergoes a non-consensual leg amputation. He is deeply anguished and resentful of the unanimous decision made by the doctors to hack off his leg. His agonizing response on, on being asked whether or not he wants prosthesis is at once profoundly emotional and ethical. He writes, You anesthetized me and hacked off my leg and dropped it in refuse for someone else to collect and toss it into fire. How can you stand there talking about care of my leg? Like Shopchek, he is also initiated into this realm of technologization where prosthesis is not only an inevitable necessity but also a prop that conveniently hides and effaces disability under the homogeneity of human form. But instead of opting for an artificial leg and obliterate the absence of the missing one, he decides to use a Zimmer frame and crutches. As the narrative progresses, the readers are acquainted with how Paul reorients his motion and reintegrates his bodily dynamics. At the outset of his post-amputation stage, he experiences sharp, throbbing phantom pains. Even a mention of his amputated leg acted as a trigger. The description goes as follows. As if the leg knows, being spoken of, as if these terrible words have roused it from its troubled sleep, the right leg sends him a shaft of jagged white pain. He hears his own gasp and then the thudding of blood in his ears. Phantom pains that all amputees suffer from are a rather confusing phenomenon. Unlike any other pain, they do not really have a presence. On the contrary, they are quite literal reminders of an absence. The main reason behind their occurrence is the perception that the missing limb is still present. This persists because the mental body image of the amputee remains unaltered while the real physicality and body schema have drastically changed. Phenomenologists like Merleau-Ponty and Gallagher have extensively discussed the phenomenon of the body image and body schema. Gallagher defines the body image as consisting of a system of perceptions, attitudes and beliefs pertaining to one's body. He sharply differentiates it from the body schema, which involves certain motor capacities, abilities and habits that both enable and control movement and the maintenance of posture. Both these mechanisms, one psychological while the other physiological, work in close correspondence with each other, forming a complete holistic mechanism of the body-mind connect, 
which is both constantly evolving with new experiences and permanently carved in our memory. In the event of an amputation or physical impairment, the pre-reflective orientation of the body-mind association gets deeply damaged. This damage cannot be repaired or treated by implementing prosthesis or just simply augmenting the body in any form. The pain and difficulty still persists and so does the never-ending process of rehabilitation without the fantasy of enhancement and correction ever culminating into reality. The most daunting task after an abrupt physical impairment is to learn to navigate in known spaces and occupy them with least discomfort while performing usual activities. In her memoir, Body Undone, Crosby projects this facet when she describes how her drastically alters physical performance of perfunctory activities and the inconveniences that her own house caused after being rendered paraplegic from an accident. In the memoir, she writes, she describes the long process of taking a shower. She writes, we needed help for getting me onto a tub because our only bathroom was on the second floor. To get me to the tub and shower me, Donna had to transfer me one, from the bed onto my wheelchair, two, from the wheelchair to the stair lift chair that would take me upstairs, three, off it and onto a folding wheelchair that was stored in a closet outside the bathroom, four, from that wheelchair onto the shower bench straggling the toilet and the tub, and finally onto the shower chair in the tub itself. Crosby enumerates the sheer discomfort she experiences. Here, her house, her unknown space, has magnified into an unfamiliar domain of geometric precision, requiring strenuous conscious efforts to move in. A formerly non-conscious activity of taking a shower amplifies to an extent that she consciously and meticulously breaks it down into an elaborate procedure. Now, taking a shower comprises not only five tedious steps, but also involves two different wheelchairs and three assistive devices. How different is her experience from this picture? She has yet not become the superwoman who has chosen to fly by the aid of a wheelchair. Rather, Crosby's reality lies in living her life with acute awareness of motion, however minute it is. This exaggerated intentionality shows that one continues to persist in and through one's body, despite the drastic and adversarial transformations. Author and dramatist Samuel Beckett acutely projects the dimension in his writing. For his impaired characters are often seen taking precisely calculated steps, and in miscalculation of which leads a fall. However taxing the movement may be, his characters never forsake the possibilities of accomplishing it. This is most discernible in the novel Molloy, where the eponymous hero has one stiff leg. The first half of the novel is dedicated to his odyssey to his mother's house that essentially begins from and ends at nowhere. He declares, and as a disclaimer, this quote has Beckettian absurdities, so... Yeah. <laughs> he writes, I resolved to go and see my mother. I needed, before I could resolve to go and see that woman, reasons of an urgent nature, and with such reasons, since I did not know what to do and where to go, it was child's play for me. So I got up, adjusted my crutches, and went down the road, where I found my bicycle. I did not know I had one, in the same, play in the same place I must have left it. Mulloy had already suspended the prerequisites of going on a journey, that is, having a planned route and purpose. Other discernible features that cloud his excursion are his debilitating memory and limping body. But these impediments do not hinder him from embarking on a journey. On the contrary, he meticulously mounts his bicycle and initiates the adventure. Saying, crippled though I was, I was no mean cyclist at that period. This is how I went about it. I fastened my crutches to the crossbar, one on either side. I propped the foot of my stiff leg, I forgot which, now they're both stiff, on the projecting axle, and I pedaled with the other. Molloy riding the bicycle, despite his physical limitations, projects the infinite resources that perpetually enable the body to keep moving even after it confronts impairments. 
He maneuvers his legs and crutches in motions that are comfortable to him, but may seem awkward and anomalous to a typical bodied spectator. Malloy's assertion that his crippled state was by no means a hindrance to him being a cyclist also gestures towards his awareness of an able-bodied ideal pervasive in the socio-cultural milieu. The aforementioned accounts, both fictional and real, have depicted the grim and the bleak realities of suffering from physical impairments. On one side, there is the abrupt rupture of habitual bodily orientation, while on the other, there are also willing and fruitful efforts at resettling, reorganizing and reorienting the existing locomotive potential. Considering that each and every body has its own way of becoming, does it not become rather essential to also respect one's way of being without imposing normalcy or hypernormalcy? In the spectrum of these limping, staggering, wobbling and falling individuals, there are none who wish to overcome their limitations and erase them by flying high in the technological domain of superhuman augmentation, where they not only defeat the limitations of their impairment, but also surpass the capacities of the normal embodiment. Since we live in an era where debates and discussions around posthumanism and transhumanism have rendered human materiality as nothing more than a source of information patterns and as something that could be corrected and enhanced, the very picture of disability has fundamentally shifted and not for the better. <coughs> Any form of physical disability gave way to an overwhelming need to hide or fix them. But today, in the wake of the transhumanist perspective, where human embodiment has been negated to make, what, to make way for the machinic, the narrative has shifted from hiding and fixing to enhancing and augmenting the body by means of machinic interventions of various kinds. In order to enable one to become better than one was and have the ability to spurn off one's limitations, the internet is rife with images, with supercrip images of amputees and prosthetics that manipulate the outlook of the society towards the physically enfeebled. Thus, not only propagating a dangerously ignorant discursive practice of superhumanism, but also entirely effacing the singularity of experience of living with an impairment. The subversive potential of techno-fueling of the human body is that it is exploiting the very nature of human materiality and liminality, encouraging a ruthless fetishistic desire to become limitlessly better, whilst also harnessing the lucrative potential of that desire. Performance artists such as Orlin and Stellark reiterate to parodic excess the plastic and experimental possibilities of the body subjected to prosthetic enhancement and endless, and endless plastic surgeries. Orlin underwent multiple surgeries to change her appearance, asserting, this is my body, this is my software. Beginning in the 1990s, her surgery went live from the operation theatre. The surgical procedure was titled, The Reincarnation of St. Orlin. After this, she was to acquire the chin of Venus, the nose of Psyche, the eyes of Diana, the lips of Europa and the brow of Mona Lisa. And that picture shows the result. And Stellark, on the other hand, believes in augmenting the body to attain a state of hyperfunctionality where the body can attach itself to a machinic interface of multiple legs and hands, all operated by computer software. He claims these performances address the questions, can we consider the body that can function neither with memory nor desire? And is it possible to navigate the world displaced from the cultural spaces of emotion and of personal experience? Such questions are not only reflective of the post and transhuman ethos of human omnipotence at the cost of the body, but they also bear on the question of reception and attitudes toward disabilities in general. In ignoring or dismissing the significance of the lived personal experience, we may also come to disregard the adaptation and adjustment involved in living with physical enfeeblements, and with that, the, the complex range of effects and emotions which accompany these experiences. A direct consequence of this adverse narrative is that it gives rise to what Harvey Carell attributes as epistemic injustice, which corresponds to the patient's lack of opportunity to express themselves and what they are going through 
This denial makes them feel uninformed and inadequate. The epistemic injustice that lurks behind the supercrypt narrative is the annihilation of the fact that each body has a uniquely tailored way of being. It is unethical to impose a heteronormative bodily stereotype of gait, posture and comportment on individuals. The limping and staggering that an able onlooker may find a sign of extreme discomfort could be another's organic way of walking, coping and existing. If on one side there are people like the prosthetic supermodel and athlete Amy Mullins who actively endorses the technophilic narrative of agility by asserting, with all this new technology, why can't you design a leg that looks and acts like a leg? I want to be at the forefront of these possibilities. The guy designing the next generation of theme parks, the engineers, the glass blowers. I want everyone to come to me with their ideas. There also exist people like Christina Crosby, who even after sustaining a fatal spinal cord injury, are willing to confront the change and accept the demands and challenges of living with physical debilitation without really craving any superhuman potential that could strip them of the newly imposed limitations. She asserts, in order to live on, I must actively forget the person I once was. I'm no longer what I once was, and yet come to think of it, neither are you. All of us who live on are not what we were, but are becoming. I have chosen, and for the immediately foreseeable future, will choose to live as fully and passionately as I can. Every time I make that choice, I move further from the past, and am increasingly detached from what I once was. These two experiences starkly contrast each other, revealing opposing demands and expectations. The contention of this presentation is that both are equally significant and crucial, because in representing two conflicting strands of thought, they bring to the fore that each body is a distinctive being that differs in its experience of disability. In delineating the biological struggles of the body, these narratives too, to some extent, redress epistemic injustices in our appreciation of physical impairments by suggesting that every individual embodiment is an indefatigable being, not a normative or stagnant one, that needs to be pressured into achieving a superhuman or hypernormative vitality. Thank you.